And I, I learned a ton. I was fortunate to have a, a, a couple of bosses at the time that said, look, kid, you're not going to do me any good unless you know what we do. So go up there and find out what we do. And he literally gave me a truck and, and uh, some contact names and all of a sudden found myself uh, hanging out with the line crew as they're changing glass on the 138 Energized or down to the bottom of the draft tube uh, or sort of any number of uh, wild and weird places I didn't even know existed. So it was a great learning time for me. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. A little background first, before I get to my guest today. Construction was completed last fall on a 315 kV line near where I live, and it was fascinating to be able to watch the progress. I also had some questions, most of which were answered on the utilities website, which had a page devoted specifically to the project. There were pages dedicated to a number of other major projects as well, so I began to wonder about how companies are able to meet the surge capacity required for engineering, design, and construction for major projects. So I took my dog for a walk one day to get a closer look, especially at the logo on the vehicles at the worksite. What I discovered was the surge capacity on that project was provided by the major contractor, Valard, a company that also happens to be a corporate partner of CEA. I'm delighted to talk today with a senior executive of Valard. I'm joined by Keith Soans, Executive Vice President of Strategy and Business Development and the VP of Ontario Operations for Valard. Keith and I talk about project complexity, working with communities and First Nations, the challenges of building infrastructure, of meeting the challenges of the net zero future, and making sure we have the people to meet the challenges of the future. And like many previous podcasts, we close the conversation with a book recommendation. Here's my conversation with Keith Soans, recorded mid-March 2021. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Glad you were able to join me. Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the time. I think maybe what we'd start with would be maybe tell us a little bit about Valard, the company. I'm familiar with them because they just finished, or your company just finished building a 315 kV line about three kilometers from where my hobby farm is. And so I, I saw the equipment and the logo uh, regularly. But tell us a little bit about the, the, the company and, and the operations. Sure, happy to. Um, the company is just over 40 years old, and it started as a, as a literally one man, one truck. Um, up in uh, Northern Alberta and the Northwest Territories back in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's since expanded, obviously, and now we cover not just the national footprint, but we've got uh, ongoing U.S. operations. Um, for a time, we had uh, a fairly decent presence in Western Europe, and we've been bidding on work uh, in Australia um, as well as right across Canada. Our forte, it really depends on who you're asking in terms of what they say Valorant is. So mm-hmm. if you've been... As you mentioned, you had a 315 kV circuit uh, recently constructed. If you're in the transmission space, then yeah. you've probably heard of us in terms of engineering, uh, designing, constructing large transmission lines. If you're in uh, the GTA in, in Metro Toronto, 
um, you would see us as a distribution contractor. Okay. If, you, if you're in the oil sands, you would see us as a distribution contractor and uh, with a, a very uh, diverse distribution cap uh, capability as well. And if you're in Saskatchewan, you might also see us as a telecom contractor. So, oh, really? Telecom yes, as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I would love to say that this is a brilliantly executed strategy that deployed itself <laughs> over a period of 10 or 15 years, uh -huh. but I would be lying. <laughs> what actually happened is as we grew yeah. and as we, we gained customer confidence and expanded our portfolio in terms of uh, the service lines, we recognized that it was, it was better for us and better for the customers to be able to have those integrated services available. I'll give you a case in point. Mm -hmm. Do a lot of uh, EPC type contracts. And the reason for that is when you're designing a transmission line or a substation or a distribution circuit or a telecom facility, it's an awful lot easier to have those that will do, be doing the construction in the same room as those that are doing the design. Okay. The large uh, proportion or the largest proportion of, of uh, the cost of any construction project or any, yeah. any developed project will be in construction materials and labor. Right. So if you can find ways to make that more efficient mm -hmm. by talking to the constructors first, as opposed to designing something and then sending it over the fence to, you know, it could be an internal resource or it could be a, a tender. There are any number of things that can go wrong. Um, so it, it was more of an evolution that, that uh, forced us to recognize that, wow, if we could actually talk to the engineers first before we actually constructed something, it would just go a lot more, more smoothly. And it certainly has. So that's, uh, that's the same philosophy we bring, irrespective of whether it's transmission, substations, urban distribution, um, you know, work up in the far north for telecom, uh, which we mm -hmm. executed uh, up in Inuvik last year, for example. Okay. So we're, uh, we're, we're um, continually expanding, but really eager now that we're on the cusp of what I would refer to as convergence um, right across the, the electric industry, mm -hmm. um, where you've got uh, any number of needs that have to be met. And hopefully we can talk about a few of those specifically, but uh, that, anyways, that's a little bit about Ballard National Footprint in Canada and, uh, and beyond. So is that um, increasing integration of engineering design and construction? Is that is that a trend that you're you're, you're seeing uh, really across the uh, across the industry, or is this something that uh, that that is is relatively new and unique to uh, to what Valor is bringing to the table? The the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, in, in terms, I'll, I'll go to the yes first. Uh -huh. So in terms of whether it's a trend, quite often you'll see. Uh, contractually speaking, it could be a, a P3 type project, or it could be just a a, um, uh, a project of, of a large scope of some sort, where the owner or the developer will contract. Um, could be multi, could be a partnership. It could be multiple uh, different agencies, but they will they will bundle it up and they will say we are going to have this engineered, procured, and constructed externally. Uh, for the most part, the way that deploys is you'll have an engineering firm. Uh, coupled with a construction firm, perhaps with a materials firm, or let us go to market for all of that. So although from the developer's perspective or the owner's perspective, it's a trend, from the execution perspective, it's more of the same. So the, the no part, um, and I think this does tend to make us a bit unique, having all of those services in-house, we're not reliant on, on going to a lot of the traditional um, other firms for those services. So if you've got uh, a request for information, for example, it, it, of course, it's all formalized, but that request can go from the constructor to the designer across the table. And the answer could be handled in 30 seconds, as opposed to the traditional three or four weeks, um, you know, typically when you're, you're shuttling paper back and forth. 
So it's that, that um, model that we like to refer as EPC plus that uh, really has, brings that capability to bear and eliminates a lot of those, those historic roadblocks. I noticed that uh, that Valor is a, a Quanta Services company, so it's part of that larger family. What does that What does that mean for for you and 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 for the clients? Right, um, I would refer to Quanta Services as more than a holding company, less than an operating company. So okay. Valor Valor was acquired by Quanta Services in 2010. Right, uh, Quanta by far is the largest um, contracting agency in its space. So yeah. they are, without a doubt. Um, you know, the most diverse, uh, the largest footprint, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How that benefits the customer, um, not only do you have the access to financing, if that were the case, or additional expertise, uh, additional equipment, emergency response uh, capabilities, but um, we're also able to collaborate. So if there's a, a service, it could be a niche service that we don't have in Ballard, right. it's literally a phone call away to some of the other dozens of companies that uh, fold under the Quanta Services umbrella. Gotcha. So maybe tell me a little bit about some of the some of the specific projects. Because I was I was looking at the list of projects, and they they do cover the the uh, gambit of everything, and they seem to be all across uh, all across the country and in, in kind of every single market, uh, east to west, way up in the north uh, on uh, the nuclear side of things, on 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 telecommunications and and uh, and transmission in just about every market. Absolutely, yeah. So it's easy to, easiest to talk about some of the marquee projects. Yeah. Um, so I'll highlight some of those, but also talk about some of the lesser known ones as well. Okay. Um, so right, right across the country, west to east, we've uh, we constructed the Northwest Transmission Line for BC Hydro um, yeah. back in the uh, 20-teens. A lot of work in Alberta, um, particularly in the uh, the run-up as the oil prices, um, you know, continue to skyrocket. A lot of the infrastructure continued to get built. Yeah. Uh, more recently, and this was uh, a bit of a novel exercise, and, and you're likely aware of it in... Uh, I guess it was about 2013, something like that. The ASO, the system operator in Alberta, decided to go with a different model for procurement. Yes. So r- rather than going to with one of the incumbents uh, and said, build this transmission line that went to market. So we ended up partnering with ATCO, uh, which which um, I guess ironically was the incumbent in that area or that territory anyway, okay. but uh, yeah. had to compete for it. Right. And we constructed the West Fort McMurray transmission line. Yeah, that was uh, about 500 kilometers of 500 kV with with uh, two major stations as well. That was uh, notable in that we had 14 First Nations that were also directly involved in the project, and that I wouldn't say that that's become or, or sorry that was the the template for it since we've been working with First Nations communities for many years. So we've we've also got um, uh, the Manitoba Minnesota Transmission Line, which yep. was recently completed. Yep. Um, you've got uh, everything from Bruce to Milton. Uh, in Ontario, the Watena Kinniat project that we're currently constructing uh, in combination. Oh yes, right, right with so uh, with Fortis uh, Alberta and, and Watai Power, yeah. That's right. With Fortis uh, Ontario, rather, yeah, and Watai That's Power. right. Very and cool. Then, okay. And then uh, right side by side, we've got the East West Tie Line um, that we're constructing. Okay. And that that was once again a, a go to market procurement um, from the ISO originally Ontario. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of the projects uh, that you've seen in uh, in Quebec. And we've got an ongoing operation there. And yep. then if you go just a little bit further east, um, once again, recent, recently completed was the Nalcor uh, transmission line, both AC and DC. It was roughly 1,100 kilometers of some of the, the uh, harshest, most yeah. aggressive um, landscape you could possibly find. Yeah. So that's a lot of the transmission, transmission work. Um, right. We've got ongoing distribution operations in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec. And uh, so th- those are the those are some of the trucks you'll see driving up and down the roads, but you won't necessarily know why they're there. Right. Um, 
could be everything from tree trimming, and then of course telehome work. Um, we had a um, had a, and continue to have a uh, fairly robust presence. I think pretty much everywhere except British Columbia. That's a market that um, we 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 have participated in, but not mm -hmm. uh, as significantly as some of the others. Mm -hmm. One of the other other pieces that were um, uh, typically are the, the, I guess the forgotten cousins of some of the transmission projects or the substations that have to connect everything together. Right. Um, and one of the, one of the things that of note, and it's, it's all on the public record. If you take a look at where the expenditures for a lot of the, a lot of your member utilities are, are going to be, uh, directed here in the next number of years, it'll be into the substation upgraded uh, sector. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them, that maintenance is just deferred over the years, um, you know, spent on distribution and transmission upgrades where, you can, you can reconduct a part of a line or you can change a few of the poles, but you can't change half a transformer. Yeah. So it, you know, a lot of that stuff just got uh, pushed and pushed until it couldn't get pushed anymore. So we're doing uh, some brownfield and greenfield uh, work in the, in the substation space as well. Very cool. Did, did um, COVID-19 impact uh, your operations? Did it slow down the work? Did it make it more complex? Uh, the latter, yes. Uh, not really slowed it down. Um, we were we were of course subject to, to a lot of the same restrictions as everybody else and yep. depending where we were working in the country uh, or down in the us um you know those of course that they imposed themselves upon us so right. it did come, become more complex in terms of testing uh, you can imagine when you've got hundreds and hundreds of people uh, working on a, a remote project um, potentially interacting with first nations communities that have particular concerns about COVID 19 mm -hmm. that testing isolation um large bubbles entry and exit from camps yeah. all of that had to be very aggressively managed and continues to be to this day yeah, yeah. Um, apart from that um nothing that that was out of the ordinary you and your member uh, uh utilities would, would certainly have Mm -hmm. uh, you know, firsthand knowledge of exactly what you have to do to get in and out of the building, uh, precautions you have to take. Mm -hmm. So not, not, we weren't hit as bad as some sectors, uh, for sure, although there were a lot of precautions that had to be put in place. Right, right. So you mentioned um, a, a couple of projects that uh, that were uh, either directly or in, in partnership with, uh, with uh, Indigenous communities, First Nations communities. Uh, how complex is it now uh, and is it becoming more complex to to build infrastructure um or uh you know are, are you now getting into uh sort of getting into a rhythm um uh and now have the, the tools to to be able to to work with those uh, work with those communities to to move these projects forward it just right. seems to me it looks like it's getting harder to build infrastructure it is, but I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to uh, the the inclusion or working with a number of the First Nations communities. Right. I guess uh, first first things first. Um, although they they uh, the group tends tends to get uh, homogenized in terms of it, it's you know how we tend to describe it. Yeah. All all communities are different. Uh, they have different capacities, different interests, um, different personalities. Yeah. So you can't approach it with any sort of cookie cutter template. You have to spend a lot of time with people to understand you know what are they looking for sometimes yeah. they're, they're looking for deployment of their their, their um, member businesses sometimes yes. they're looking for training sometimes yeah. they're looking for and increasingly uh, equity and and actual financial partnerships so um if you get in and and start those conversations early if you're sincere about it if you truly take the time to listen and not assume that they will they will um be receptive to just you know accepting whatever you choose to hand out mm -hmm. it can not only be uh productive it can be um quite rewarding right you know some of the friendships that uh that emerge from those are are lifelong mm -hmm. um in terms of the complexity 
th there's no question that historically, and, and this was really exemplified when I was, uh, was working for another Quanta company, and uh, it was uh, one of the members of the Seashelt Nation on the West Coast. Right. And we were having, just having a conversation about some upcoming projects. And she said, you know, Keith, one of the things that disappoints me the most is I have a wallet full of trading cards and no job. And right. historically, it, yeah. was, it, it, was, it was sad because, you know, companies would move into town, they'd execute a project, they'd hire some people, perhaps provide some training, and then leave. Yeah. So there was no legacy. We're quite conscious of the fact that we don't want to be that organization. We want to be... Obviously, you've got a job to do. You've got to have something. Something's going to get constructed. But roughly one quarter of our apprentices, uh, and this has been going on for a number of years, uh, are Indigenous. Mm -hmm. So they, they join the company as a result of a project being built near their community. Yeah. Uh, they they then joined the company and traveled yeah. with the company, depending on you know where those next projects were. So we're quite proud of that fact, and I think it's a testament to the to uh, the idea that um, they are truly partners. They are mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, a, a community is, is a group of people. It's not an obstacle. It's not an impediment. It's not something that, that needs to be worked around. It, it needs to be, it's, it's a group of people that need to be embraced and, you know, uh, and really brought in, into the project or um, if it's a, say, you know, a maintenance agreement, well, we've got some of those as well. Yeah. Um, we had a, a very good outcome in terms of uh, another project where it's, it's, I think now the, First, and of course, it's, it was a smaller project, but the Lower Nickel Indian Band in British Columbia mm -hmm. um, is now the majority owner of a 20 kilometer, 138 kV transmission line in south, uh, southern BC. Right. That was a partnership between Ballard and the, uh, the nation mm -hmm. that uh, they, they initially were looking for a partner. They selected us a number of years ago, and we worked with them to get, get it to that point. And they were remarkable to work with. Uh, quite honestly, a lot of fun. And now there's a transmission line standing, uh, it's operating, it's connected, and uh, they are the primary equity player. So that's what I mean about the rewarding part, where you feel right. like you're actually being part of history, or at least helping to facilitate some of the things that should be happening anyway. Yeah. You know, and you, you know, your, your uh, um, caution about thinking thinking of these as as homogenous uh, homogenous communities i'm reminded of something that that somebody from one of the, the nations um in the yukon said at one of our board meetings a couple of years ago uh to uh to all of the attendees he said uh, uh once you've uh, visited a remote indigenous community you visited one remote indigenous community <laughs> Right. Yes. right. Each community is different and every everyone is different. So what are you what are you seeing then as as the, the principal challenges to because your company builds uh, linear infrastructure? What, what are you seeing as the principal challenges to building linear infrastructure kind of today and, and, and you know, projecting forward? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it, I don't think the answer has changed. If you would have asked me this 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, I probably okay. wouldn't have a similar answer. By virtue of the fact that it is long and linear, you're touching on, on any number of different jurisdictions. Uh, right. It could be, as we talked about, a number of different First Nations communities. It could be also environmental um, regulators. Of course, landowners are not necessarily uh, first in line to be saying, please build it in my backyard. Right. So yeah. that, that could be a challenge unto itself. Um, once you get to the design and the construction phase, I won't say it's easy. You've got the normal challenges associated with that, but it's more predictable. Is, are things getting more difficult to build in Canada? Um, I would have to say probably, mm -hmm. but the delays tend to be on the front end. The regulatory approvals, and this is obviously well before our involvement, 
Right. But uh, sitting on the sidelines, and prior to this, I spent about 20 years working for a couple of different utilities. Yeah. And in part was involved in that uh, that process. It, it tends to be slower. Um, you know, more stakeholders are, are expressing more opinions. Um, permits are just longer in duration. I think part of that too was just uh, workload. Mm -hmm. You've got the regulators that have their hands full with any number of different projects. And while we like to think ours is first and only, um, right. they've yeah. got their desk full. Yeah. So I can't really specify, you know, any particular, here's the reason that, that things are starting to slow down a little bit, but there's just, it's kind of like walking through quicksand. You, you know, it's slow. You're just not quite sure why. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, suffice it to say, I think that that's something that does need to be tackled um, in the next, uh, next few years. Um, and I would say the next few years, as opposed to the next several decades, because we don't have a lot of time to get this stuff built. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to, I absolutely want to touch on that. It, it sounds as though, um, you know, what you're saying is that the construction side of things is not um, where the challenges are. It's, it's kind of getting to the yes, getting to the, getting to the approval is, is where the, the quicksand tends to be. Definitely. So if you look at today's landscape, and I think most, uh, most utilities would, would agree with the statement that if you want to develop a transmission line just or, or a sort of a large facility of any kind, um, you're probably looking at seven to 10 years yeah. from the time that it, it first gets proposed and put on a regulator's desk or for the business case is formalized uh, through to commissioning. The actual design and construction part of that is probably give or take two years. Yeah. So just to you know, put things in perspective, most of the work, the heavy lifting uh, and the time delay is on the front end. Right, so. right. And and we're in a world that that is that is that is changing. We've got a, a government in Ottawa that um, has committed to a, a net zero by twenty fifty uh, future, uh, and so that's going to mean a pretty significant build out for uh, electricity. Uh, uh, you know, there are some uh, uh, projections that are would suggest that uh, end use of electricity is is going to uh, double or triple between now and twenty fifty. Um, but it, it is going to be ramping up and it's going to be ramping up soon. There's targets to 2030 that we have to have to meet as well. Do we, I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges on the, uh, on the approvals process, um, but do we have the, the, the capacity and the capability to do that kind of a, a, a large build out in the next, well, nine years to get to our 2030 targets and then out to the 2050 targets. It sounds like it's a pretty huge build um, that, that you and, and others are going to be expected to, uh, to, uh, to, to help us, you know, help us meet those targets. 100% Francis. It's, it's going to be a massive build and, and not just um, the things that get talked about. So if you think about the fact that, that if somebody's going to have an electric car in their driveway or yep. they're going to, you know, get rid of their gas furnace and install a heat pump, Right. All of that infrastructure that gets the, wherever the power is generated through to wherever it gets consumed, yeah. all of the infrastructure along the way is also very old. Yeah. So, okay. you know, this yeah. is not a new conversation, but the, the emphasis is quite often on, um, you know, you have to uh, build the solar farm, build the, the, uh, the wind facility or, you know, alternate generation, depending on what it may be. Maybe there's distributed generation in the mix as well. I think that'll become more prevalent. Yep. But if you think about the fact, and, and this is, uh, I found this remarkable at the time, uh, a few years ago, one of the large uh, crown utilities uh, had mentioned that they estimated that currently about 10% of their assets were in the poor to very poor category, just in terms right. of condition, condition assessment. Yeah. 
they estimated that 10 years hence, after they spent multi-billions of dollars, 14% would be in that cat, those two categories. That's going the wrong way, right? It's going the wrong way. So yeah. you're spending billions of dollars to not even keep up. Yeah. So what does that mean for this uh, two or three times uh, consumption of electricity when it's got to be pushed through a grid or likely the grids that, it, that uh, continue to exist today? Yeah. So it's not, it's not just the, um, you know, packing, uh, to use a, a bit of an analogy, it's not just taking the camping equipment and putting it in the back of the car when you go camping. Mm -hmm. You have to rebuild the engine at the same time. Right. And uh, it, it's going to be a very daunting, very, um, very, very significant, and I think uh, underestimated build, yeah. but also necessary. Yeah. So that speaks to new training programs. Where are these people coming from? And this is not, not news to yourself that uh, a lot of people that are working in the sector today, 10 years from now, likely won't be. Mm -hmm. Do we have adequate training programs? It's, there hasn't been a lot of emphasis put on them in the, in the past number of years. Yeah. So I think that's going to be something that, uh, that will really become front and center. Right. Yeah. And we at the association are increasingly talking about what is, what does that 2050 future look like? What does it mean for, uh, for the electricity companies themselves? And I'm assuming, um, you know, you're probably having the same kind of reflections as well. We talked a little bit about some of those challenges. Um, are there are there other challenges uh, for you know for for you and for Valor as, as you look to try and try and meet that demand into the future? People is definitely one of them, and yeah. we're fortunate to be surrounded by by uh, you know really good uh, capable people. But uh, you know a lot of those people uh, you know entered the workforce uh, maybe in a similar time frame as you or I. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I look back over the last thirty plus years just in this sector, uh, and I realized that. You know, I've got less runway left than I that I've already chewed up, and yeah. that's the same for an awful lot of people. So, um, you know, you're looking at, at the need for linemen, engineers, uh, yeah. accountants, all of all, right across the board. Right. And of course, you're you're competing uh, both internationally and uh, you know with with some of our utility clients as well. We're we're all in that same big boat. So I think um, I, I actually don't believe that the solutions that we've used in the past are going to fit the future. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, we can, we can definitely get synergy out of becoming true partners. Yeah. But if we use some of the traditional mechanisms to get things done, uh, we are going to find ourselves consumed by this wall of, of necessity that simply can't be tackled traditionally. Right. Well, speaking of people, let's, let's talk about you. Uh, specifically, and, and you said, you know, you've, you've uh, done a, a part of a fair amount of your runway already. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your journey and, and how, you know, you've arrived at, at your current position as a, as an EVP at Valard. Uh, what was, what was your journey that, that brought you to this position? Yeah. Uh, great question. Uh, primarily a result of horrible life planning. To be quite honest. <laughs> um, I graduated from, I'd been working uh, generally in construction in the, in the early to mid eighties and uh, dabbled in university for a while. And ended up going back to the uh, BC Institute of Technology for health and safety. Right. Just, I found it interesting. And I graduated and I didn't know a thing about the, the electric grid, power utilities, anything. I knew I, I flicked the light switch and the lights went on most of the yeah. time and, and I paid a bill. Yeah. I got recruited out of, out of school uh, to go work for BC Hydro. And I ended up spending about six and a half years there. Mm -hmm. And then all in health and safety. And I, I learned a ton. I was fortunate to have a, a, a couple of bosses at the time that said, one of them particularly said, look, kid, you're not going to do me any good unless you know what we do. So go up there and find out what we do. Mm -hmm. 
and he literally gave me a truck and, and uh, some contact names and a few phone numbers. And, and I was, you know, all of a sudden found myself, uh, you know, hanging out with the line crew as they're changing glass on the 138 Energized or down to the bottom of the draft tube uh, or sort of any number of uh, wild and weird places I didn't even know existed. So it was a great learning time for me. In uh, late 1996, uh, another smaller utility, which is uh, uh, known as West Kootenai Power at the time, and okay. has, yep. has sure. now uh, morphed into Fortis BC. Fortis BC, yeah. That's right. Uh, they had uh, two unfortunate fatalities within a period of six weeks. And I ended up uh, going over there. And although it was a, a tragic time, I had the opportunity to rebuild and I worked with others to help rebuild and completely revamp a lot of the systems that were in place. And that was, okay. yeah. that was um, once again, enlightening in a very different way. I'd, mm -hmm. I'd gone from you know, BC Hydro that had been very traditional, large, uh, you know, been around forever, very, very structured in their ways to a very small regional utility that uh, I think was described as by the former CFO as the, the little utility that could. Yeah. It, it was one of those um, small but nimble groups. Stayed there and, and got tapped on the shoulder a few years into that and asked if I'd like to um, uh, put my name in the, in the hat for an operations manager. So once again, here, here comes the bad life planning. <laughs> and I said, sure. And uh, so that was a completely different uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. It had been you know, 10 years of health and safety, you know, participating in a couple of CEA working groups and just getting to know that field. Okay. Uh, yeah. I felt, I felt uh, comfortable. And immediately I felt uncomfortable as soon as I was uh, launched into this, this operations mm -hmm. world where the, the challenges of the people, the, the, the metrics were all very different. In 2003, I think it was something about, uh, that's when the Fortis acquisition occurred. Yep. And they had, uh, and, and had well executed their, uh, their uh, capital plan. So the utility was uh, from an asset perspective, needed, needed a lot of work and Fortis uh, came armed to be able to execute that work. Once again, tap on the shoulder. Uh, now it was down the project management route. So I went from having a, a whole bunch of care and feeding for, you know, linemen and meter readers, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. to a team of myself armed with a number of spreadsheets and a, and a long list of projects that had to get executed. <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years. And, and during that, my frustration for, like we mentioned before about how slow things can be yep. um, on, on the front end. And I, I was constantly complaining that, you know, that the projects that I was supposed to get executed weren't brought to construction readiness fast enough. And, you know, the, all the people upstream, whoever those, those, uh, you know, nameless, fam faceless people were, they were just getting in my way. Um, so I'm not sure whether it was a, a sadistic move or, or a wise move, but uh, my boss at the time said, I've got a great idea. We're going to put you in charge of all of those upstream activities for us. And we'll give you this, this suite of, of uh, projects that you now need to get the construction readiness. So this involved uh, First Nations inclusion, uh, right. municip yep. municipal, yeah. Um, you know, approvals, uh, sitting on the utilities commission as an expert witness when you've got a, a long line of interveners or, or um, you know, in line to tell you why you can't build that project. And it was tremendously eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. Once again, um, I ended up at, uh, I've done that for a number of years and then ended up back in BC Hydro for about a three-year stint. And uh, it, once again, in, in, uh, in health and safety. And it was, once again, now it was the corporate view. Um, large organization, but, but historically I'd been the guy in the field and now I was the guy in the office who was sort of overseeing all the standards development and program development and, and that kind of thing. And then uh, 
uh, a headhunter called and asked if I'd be interested in joining this uh, contractor. And I, I, I still remember that conversation when I said, look, I'm a utility person. That's what I do. Um, that's just who I am. And I would be completely, uh, you know, like a fish out of water if I, if I tried to do anything else. Anyway, one thing led to the next and it was my wise wife who said, well, what do you got to lose? Why don't you try it? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did. I never looked back. That was uh, in 2010, uh, just before the uh, the 2010 games, which I was involved with. As oh, a, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So li- living in Vancouver at the time. Yeah. And uh, the, the one thing that I, I was um, pretty adamant about when I joined the, uh, the contracting group was I had made some commitments to the 2010 games as an official. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see those through. And they were, they were very generous. Yeah, no, no problem at all. So um, got through that. And it's been contracting ever since. And and so uh, since that time, uh, you've been you've been in the contracting world now since since 2010. Uh, as you, you look back at your time in the contracting world, is there a particular project that you're that you're most proud of that that you've been uh, uh, involved in in that time? Wow, um, I think I would probably have to say, um, although it wasn't the, the largest project by any stretch, the one that I referred to previously, the. Um, uh, the one that involved the Lower Nickel Indian Band. Yes. Okay. I th- that was uh, completely from cradle to grave. So I was yep. involved, um, you know, before there was even a project to talk about, and uh, shepherded it through, uh, pulled others other into the conversation, uh, and just was able to watch from afar each of the steps that involved it, the, the members of the community, and yep. our organization, and ultimately the owner. Mm-hmm. So that was um, not only. And you don't often necessarily get to see something that that uh, goes right from start to finish in your mm-hmm. entire time, mm-hmm. but the just the sheer rewarding feeling of seeing the members of the nation get involved, get educated. Because like me in my early days, they didn't really understand anything about uh, you know transmission project either. Gotcha. And so helping them to get up to speed, it was, and you could see the the lights in their eyes. Um, that was that was uh, something that will always stand out. That's for sure. Hmm. One of the things, Keith, that I ask everybody that uh, joins the podcast is about a book, uh, about a book that either they're they're reading or a book that they've recently read that that they would recommend uh, to to uh, to the listener. For you, what would that book be? That's actually an easy question. Uh, it's oh, one okay. that I'm just finishing right now. Uh, a book called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Enlightenment Now. Yes, he okay. does a remarkable job of demonstrating through. Um, very, very well articulated fact, uh, you know, through the course of history that things are actually getting better in the world yeah. on just about every front. Yeah. So although we pick up the newspapers every day and you wouldn't believe it by reading, you wouldn't believe it, yeah. but it, that was, uh, I wouldn't say it was, it was a surprise, but it was really edifying to start digging through the material that he presented and go, wow, like this is not just yeah. somebody's, you know, suggestion. This is actually borne out in fact, you know, it's uh, yeah. So I would recommend that to everybody. It's uh, it's, it can be a bit of a tough slug at, uh, or slog at times, but he's a, a gifted writer and uh, he takes what could be very challenging information to absorb and synthesize uh, and just makes it very accessible. So he's, he's done a very good job. That's outstanding. Enlightenment now. I will I will add it to the, the flux capacitor reading list. Perfect. Much appreciated. Keith, thank you very much for joining and, and, and uh, chatting today. I really enjoyed it. That's been a lot of fun. Likewise, I, uh, I've been looking forward to it. I must admit, just to be able to, uh, uh, to have this conversation. So thank you very much.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca. Thank you.